Welcome to another episode of the Tom Schirmer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. Hope you all had a great weekend. This is week three of three on the road for me. I spent the weekend in Little Rock, Arkansas, but today and tomorrow I'll be in Manette, Arkansas, finishing up the Assessment Coaching Academy, this time with Buffalo Island Central Schools, and then heading back to Crossett High School for more on-site coaching on Thursday and Friday, and I finally fly home on Saturday. Uh, Quick announcement before we get going here. Uh, I'm going to move this year again to an every other format over the summer, but we're going to actually start that this week, uh, or next week, I should say. Uh, Slightly earlier than I had anticipated, but a rescheduled interview at the last minute kind of brought this along a little quicker than I'd anticipated. So after this episode, the next episode will come out May 23rd, and we're going to go every other week uh, through the month of August, and we'll see kind of how things play out after that. Probably back to our weekly format in the fall. Not also going to do a summer series. Uh, that didn't come out right. I'm not going to do a summer series uh, this year like I did last year with with group interviews, etc. But I probably am going to get a little bit looser with the format or the guests. And so, you know, so stay tuned for that. I'll, I'll figure that out as we go along. But it's summer, so we're going to relax a little bit and then get back after it in the fall. All right. I've talked about these upcoming events for you. Um, If you're looking for that summer conference, uh, the annual conference on assessment and grading, Austin, Texas, July 18 through 20. Uh, Also the fall conference, the Student Agency Institute, that'll be in Laval, Quebec, October 24th and 26th. Of course, all the information for those events can be found on the Solution Tree website. I'll have links in the show notes for both of those as well. And the other conference, of course, I've mentioned is the Teach Better Conference. The podcast, of course, is part of the Teach Better Network. That's going to be in Akron, Ohio, October 14th and 15th. Again, lots of great speakers lined up for that. I'll also have a link in the show notes um, for that conference. And we're going to have a podcast row at that conference. So if you're there... Uh, would love for you to stop by and just have a quick chat about what you've learned at the conference or or what have you. That'll be uh, great to, to see everybody. All right. Thanks for tuning in again this week. And big welcome, of course, to any new listeners joining in for the first time. And a big thank you to longtime listeners. I, of course, appreciate all of you. Uh, this week, my guest is Robbie Cobbs. Robbie is the founder of the nonprofit in Puerto Rico called Tech My School. So you're going to hear the whole story about how Robbie ended up in Puerto Rico and why he started a nonprofit. In Assessment Corner this week, we have a listener question uh, that has both a literacy and an assessment side to it, uh, and certainly love it when we get listener questions, so stay tuned for that in our last segment today. So that's today's plan. Let's get to it. My conversation with Robbie Cobbs is coming up, but first, don't at me. But I want to open this week by asking for the rule book or the manifesto that outlines specifically when we're all exactly allowed to have an opinion. Now, I'm sure by now most of you are familiar with the U.S. Supreme Court leak that happened last week that revealed that the court is poised to essentially repeal the landmark Roe v. Wade 1973 decision that protected a pregnant woman's liberty to choose to have an abortion without too much interference from the government. Now, that leak, of course, caused intense reactions on both sides of the debate. Pro-lifers celebrated, and the pro-choicers were angry, and almost immediately, there were protests popping up at the Supreme Court, as well as the state houses across the United States. 
Now, this open is not about me weighing in on that debate, but more about an observation of how the debate is unfolding that caused me to reflect on whether one particular assertion or tactic is the road we want to go down. It's about whether I can or should even weigh in on the debate. Now, maybe this tactic is unique to this debate, but my sense is that we as a society may be heading down this direction, which is only going to alienate us from one another rather than bring us together. So as I'm watching the news stories on TV about those protesting, of course, many of the protesters had signs. They had signs with various messages on them. And one particular sign caught my attention. The sign said, no uterus, no opinion. Huh. Now, my first impression was to just kind of blow it off and say, yeah, okay, sure, yeah, that makes sense. But then I quickly thought to myself, wait, does it make sense? Is this how we're going to debate now? I'm not allowed to have an opinion on anything unless it directly reflects me or I have firsthand experience? I'm not sure this is the direction we want to start going down when it comes to debating societal issues or even educational issues. It feels more like a backhanded attempt to silence people or, you know, just cut off debate with people with whom you disagree. Now, I suspect had I told the woman that I was pro-choice, she would have had no problem with me, a middle-aged white man, weighing in on the issue. So I'm not sure the sign was entirely accurate, but ask yourself, is this how we want to debate issues? The larger question is, do you have to be that or have experienced that to be allowed an opinion about an issue? I want to think about this starting with the biggest of pictures. I'm Canadian. This is a U.S. Supreme Court case, a leak, etc. It has nothing to do with the laws of my country. Am I allowed to have an opinion on it? Now, I'm sure some would say no. But at the same time, I, I think people in the United States sometimes forget how influential U.S. policies and actions can be around the world. The U.S. moves the needle unlike any other country in the world, and everyone outside the U.S. knows it. Now, listen, Dave, before you get all chesty in your one-bedroom apartment about how you're number one, uh, I'm talking about, I'm not talking about you specifically, okay? I'm talking about collectively, militarily, and economically, the United States moves the needle. So, you know, don't be showing up at our border demanding to get in as if you're some sort of landlord or older brother, okay? But this is why U.S. presidential elections are of interest worldwide. Even though I'm Canadian, I'm very well informed, and I know that presidential elections are going to influence the world, and especially Canada, where you're, you're your neighbors, so to speak, right? Well, not so to speak, we exactly are, your, your bordering neighbor. I'm not right about everything. I don't know everything, of course. But the one thing I am not is uninformed. Now, my close friend and colleague, Nicole Dimmich, often says, if you want to know anything about American politics, talk to Tom. Again, I'm Canadian but I try to keep myself informed. Does that mean I'm not allowed to have an opinion? Am I allowed to have an opinion on something like a U.S. presidential race since I know it's going to affect Canada and affect the world? Let's take another example. Let's take the example of toxic masculinity. There are, of course, many women who have very strong opinions about how men express their masculinity. Is that okay? 
they've never been men. What could they possibly know about the expression of masculinity? Now, of course, you're going to respond to me by saying, but Tom, toxic masculinity almost always negatively impacts women. So women should have a say. Should I just say back to them, nope, sorry, no Y chromosome, no opinion. You know, I, I might not have a uterus, but uh, I have a daughter for whom abortion laws might one day come into play. Can I have an opinion now? Is it okay? And no, I, I'm not hinting at anything here. This is pure fiction, purely hypothetical. So don't think I'm suddenly announcing I'm going to be a grandparent anytime soon. I am not. This is pure fiction. Now, Canada is a different country, right, with different laws. But the influence of the United States is felt everywhere, as I've said, primarily because Canadians consume so much U.S. media that there's an unavoidable cross-border influence. The Venn diagram between the two countries in terms of lifestyle would have some of the differences on the outer edges, of course, but in the center where it overlaps would be disproportionately bigger because the similarities far outweigh the differences. Now, let's, let's move this logic to schools, okay? I guess under this logic, teachers are no longer afforded an opinion about school leadership or school administration because, listen, unless you've been a principal, I'm sorry, your opinion is not welcome. What could you possibly know about being a principal when you've never been one? We okay with that? I'm pretty sure people would respond to me and say, but Tom, what principals do affects teachers. So shouldn't they have a say in how they are principled? Yes. Yes, they should. Teachers are allowed to have an opinion about principals, even though they've never been one, because it affects them. Women are allowed to have an opinion about masculinity because it affects them. And men can have an opinion on the way women express their femininity because it affects them. As a Canadian, I'm allowed to have an opinion on what happens in the United States because it affects us in Canada. And men are allowed to have an opinion on women's reproductive rights because it often affects men and affects our society, the society that we live in. Now, you might not like some people's opinions, but that is the greatest part of living in a free society. We have the freedom of thought and the freedom to disagree. Should white people, for example, abstain from any opinion about racial equity because they're white? Not allowed to weigh in? 80% of Canada's population is white. 60% of the United States population is white. 60%? That's 200 million in the United States. Systemic racism and racism itself is going to be eventually resolved by white people, okay? Not because we are the saviors or the smartest people in the room or anything like that. Not, I'm not saying that. It's not that at all. What I am saying, it's, it's a volume thing, right? 80% in Canada is a big number. That's 30 of our 38 million citizens. We have to be involved. We have to be active. We have to be leading the work. Not leading the work ideologically, but in action, because otherwise 20% of the population will never be enough. One-fifth of anything will not really make it happen if four-fifths just opts out. What about poverty? I've never lived in poverty. I grew up in a middle-class household. We never wanted for much, but we certainly didn't live in excess. Everyone responsible, every single person responsible for making policies and laws to try to combat poverty and homelessness has likely never been poor and never been homeless. Should they just say, I know it's an issue, but I don't have an opinion on it because I've never been poor. 
Of course they shouldn't say that. That's ridiculous. I just think we risk further segregating our society and compartmentalizing it if we keep ourselves in these little silos by trying to silence people because they haven't lived an experience or because they're not of a certain ilk. Like I said, maybe this argument is unique to the reproductive rights issue, but I suspect that this isn't the last time we'll hear that kind of logic used, not as a logical argument, because it's not logical, but more as an attempt to silence those who don't necessarily share your opinion. As an intelligent, well-informed, educated human being, I'm going to continue to have an opinion about anything that affects the society within which I live, and I'm not going to apologize for it either. I am not, as many of you know, one for hyperbole or fear-mongering, but I think in this case we need to be careful that we go, don't go down this road. And look, maybe we won't. But we need to make sure that we don't start compartmentalizing and segregating perspectives, because that is no way to bring a society together. Here today is my friend Robbie Cobbs, whom I met while he was working at the American International School of Lagos in Nigeria. Uh, Robbie is originally from San Diego, and uh, San Diego being one of my favorite cities all time. Uh, he's been an educator for 20 years, 10 of, 10 of those years have been spent overseas, and is the founder of the nonprofit Tech My School. He's also an aspiring ed tech author, and I know, Robbie, we're going to talk a little bit about the book uh, that you've just recently uh, scripted in terms of the manuscript. You have a master's uh, in ed tech from San Francisco State University, a bachelor's from San Diego State University, and an absolute avid traveler with all that overseas work, <laughs> 55 countries and counting. Robbie, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Tom, uh, for having me, and uh, just really excited to be here. Yeah, it's great great to have you here. Uh, our last face-to-face -face conversation, of course, we were talking before is January of 2020, so pre-pandemic. Uh, mm. We were at the Lagos Airport uh, in Nigeria waiting for those overnight flights at the Heineken Bar uh, at, at, the, at the airport, and that airport, uh, listeners, is not not a very great airport. It's a pretty rough airport. No, not a lot it is of amenities not. there. But there is this little jewel, the Heineken bar, <laughs> <laughs> post security that you feel like you're transplanted into another space. So um, it's a diamond in the rough, that's for sure. So, uh, but before we dig into uh, you know your story, which I find really compelling about how you ended up in Puerto Rico and and all of the story behind the work that you've been doing now, let's let's tell the story of your career. Uh, let's highlight for us maybe the professional journey. Uh, where did you begin your career? Why did you decide to go overseas? and all of the different roles you've fulfilled. And then ultimately, how did you end up in Puerto Rico? Great, thanks, I'll uh, just jump right into it. And that Heineken bar, uh, for those <laughs> who've never been to Nigeria, uh, you have to wait at the airport for nine hours sometimes, or seven yeah. hours, or six hours because of traffic. So that little, uh, that Heineken bar is a, is a gem. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so anyways, uh, yeah, so I started my career uh, actually in Hawaii. That's where I went to my first years of uni. And I was working at a surf shop because that's the coolest thing you can do in Hawaii. And of course. You know, I wanted to, yeah, needed to make a little money and I need to make a little more money because it's expensive there. And uh, I went to the school, try to get a job as a librarian or library assistant, basically get paid to uh, study and do my homework. And that job was filled, but they had an opportunity to uh, work in an inner city school in, Hon in Honolulu called uh, Royal Elementary. 
And at that school, I was asked to uh, teach kids how to read. Now, at the time, I had no aspirations of being an educator. I was just kind of thinking, well, I want to be a good dad one day, you know, Little League. I'll, I'll mess around with some kids. And uh, very quickly, I learned uh, this was the job for me. And so uh, after, you know, spending a year in Hawaii working with those kids, I transitioned back to San Diego because, of course, I was going to be, you know, living and working only in San Diego. I wasn't going to go anywhere but stay in my little community, uh, you know, as one does. Um, However, in Hawaii, I had a roommate uh, and he was from Sweden and uh, he would tell me like, oh, you know, Hawaii is so great. America is amazing. And I was like, listen, you got to come to the mainland. That's real America. And he was like, well, I'll come to California if you come to Sweden. In my mind, I was thinking no plans on traveling or going outside of America. Why would I do that? Um, And a little kind of dark secret about America is that very few Americans have uh, passports. It's like something like 10% of of that 10%, a very small percentage actually use them. So we're very uh, Amerocentric in a lot of ways. And so, and I was 100% like that myself and my family and and, and et cetera. Anyways, long story short, I went to Sweden. I loved it. We traveled, we did the backpack thing. And I was like hooked, love traveling, love teaching. Well, unfortunately in my mind, uh, you can't combine the two because why would someone in, you know, Croatia want to learn about George Washington, right? They have their own George Washington to learn about. Um, So I went through uh, the, the local schools in San Diego and, uh, when I was there, I actually uh, had a teacher who uh, was a mentor to me, and she talked about teaching internationally uh, through an American military base, through the um, the uh, Dodds Dodds program or Defense uh, Department of Defense, something like that. Mm-hmm. Anyways, uh, she that made sense to me. I was like, oh, a light turned on. Like, oh yes, there is this thing you can be overseas and you can teach, you know, American curriculum. Uh, so I applied for that process got a job in Turkey, but I turned it down because I met another guy when I was traveling who said, hey, there's this thing called international schools. What is that? Another Pandora's box opened and boom, I was I was off. Another huge uh, break for me, uh, I guess you can call it a break, is that the 08 crash happened at that time. And during that time, there were no teaching jobs in Southern California. For whatever reason, the, the boomers, they didn't wanna leave. They just stayed onto those positions. They were financially insecure. So there was no jobs. And so it was just a great opportunity for me to uh, kind of jump overseas. And I landed in Kazakhstan uh, in a beautiful town called Almaty, right on the foothills of the Tinshan Mountains where I was teaching kindergarten. Um, and it was just a fantastic uh, introduction to international schools. I had wonderful kids. Every kid in my class was from a different um, you know, part of the world. And it was just you know, that picture of the rainbow and all the kids you know, yeah. standing underneath it with colors, holding hands, that's international teaching. You have all these great kids from all these different schools, and it was just wonderful. So I started that uh, journey in Kazakhstan. Um, the company I worked for was QSI, uh, Quality Schools International, and they encouraged uh, teachers to kind of bounce around within their system. And uh, long story short, I ended up in uh, Qatar and uh, did the Middle East there. Then we had to do, uh, we were going to have some kids. I made a wife. We were going to do kids. Um, and, uh, we decided to have the kids back in the States. Then I went to, uh, San Francisco because, um, there was an international school there in the States. So I could have the, the boys be born in California. There's an international school, Yuchung international school where I was the tech integrator and a fourth grade teacher. And then I, um, got my master's in tech ed. Uh, by that point in my career, I had kind of 
drawn was drawn into tech. I mean, really, there's two my own core values as a person. There's two things that I and, and like many educators, my two core values are I love learning and I love helping people. And so tech is just a natural fit for me because you have to continually be learning all the time. They're continually upgrading things, introducing new things. So it's just that constant learning stream. And then with that, people don't know how to use it, right? Even for me, right. sometimes they'll, they'll change Google. I'm like, ah, where's the button? So there's a constant opportunity to help others. So very natural fit for me. And then uh, we were back overseas. I became the uh, tech technology chair at the American International School of Jeddah. I was there for four years. And then I was in uh, Lagos, Nigeria, where we had met. You'd come yeah. in um, and uh, done some great work, standard-based work. Uh, and actually, uh, my first introduction to you was before I met you was when I was in Jeddah. I uh, was working for one of my uh, all-time mentors. His name is Earl Chamberlain. He was a superintendent. And uh, he introduced me to you and your work and uh, standards-based learning. And him and I, among with other uh, very excellent educators, were able to take a traditional school into a standards-based learning uh, school. And, you know, I was a part of that process from start to finish. Uh, you know, everything from helping the parent community understand that to, uh, you know, creating the uh, standards-based report card that fits in the antiquated SIS system. Right. So that was, that was great. And then... That was about where we met. I was a yeah. tech director in Lagos uh, for two years. Yeah. Um, and then COVID hit. Yeah. And so that was the kind of defining moment that kind of got me to Puerto Rico. Okay, so so tell us more about that because I think the, the story of you ending up in Puerto Rico and uh, take us from there, because I think this, as the story unfolds, not just your mm -hmm. move to Puerto Rico, but what you sort of found. So let's take this in two parts. One is what made you decide to go to Puerto Rico and what was the plan when you went to Puerto Rico? And then once you got to Puerto Rico, the plan changed, didn't it? Yeah. So essentially COVID, kind of killed the culture of our school. Uh, we moved to Lagos to, you know, really be immersed in the culture and have the kids be really active and outdoors and and be a part of a big community. And then it just, everything become became insular. And, you know, I was a part of the, the team where we put forth a, uh, you know, a comprehensive digital learning plan. Um, along, you know, myself, Melissa, Sean, there was a lot of great educators on the team. And, uh, but though it looked great on paper, there was, the reality of it was 18 hour workdays for my wife, you know, six, seven days a week, you know, she's, you know, helping kids in Houston at this, you know, for a few hours and she's helping Lagos kids and she's helping kids in Korea because everyone kind of scattered and we all know how that went. Now at the same time, so she was getting burned out right. um, just because of the structure of the work. At the same time, Nigeria was going through civil unrest. So this was a time it was the SARS movement. You had, uh, people being literally murdered in the streets, uh, buildings and, and stores that we would frequent were becoming, you know, burned down or robbed. It became very dangerous. And so when COVID hit, a lot of the expat families left, right. you know, and, and all the, the family things left with it. So, for example, my kids used to do six activities a week, you know, fencing, boxing, tennis, golf, all these different great activities. It went from that to nothing. So just staying indoors, locking yourself in there and just seeing this chaos outside. And that was the time they asked us if we want to, you know, re-sign up for another two years. And uh, for international teachers, you get a two-year contract and then 
after you complete your first year, that fall, you get asked if you want to, you know, sign up for an additional two. So it was kind of, uh, I guess, particular timing at that moment. And we just kind of looked at each other, my wife and I, and we just made a, made a call and decided to uh, take a sabbatical. And uh, I told my wife that, listen, if we're going to take a sabbatical, I'm going to an island and I'm buying a boat. I'm going to be, <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm going to go somewhere beautiful. I want to just relax. I'm going to, you know, get on this boat. I love water sports. I love the water. And uh, she can relax and just sleep in and all that kind of stuff. I'll put the kids in the local school. And then you actually inspired me when we had met at the Heineken bar about, you know, what I asked you, how did you get from Tom Shimmer, the regular guy at a school to Tom Shimmer, the legend that you are. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Robbie, let's not get carried away here. (laughs) But I'll take it. Thank you. Yeah. Legend uh, in my own mind. (laughs) Yes. How do you get to Tom Shimmer status? And you kind of just walked me through the process and it became very, uh, you know, just organic and real and and just they, they, it became palatable for me. And then just, it seemed like, oh, I'm, you know, maybe I can do this. So I decided I'll, I'll capstone, do a capstone thing for my career and write a book and who knows where it'll go. But uh, yeah, Puerto Rico was the place. My uncle had bought a place uh, right after Maria because the real estate was just crazy cheap. Like this unbelievable beach house for very, very cheap compared, yeah. compared to San Diego. So yeah. we visited, it was beautiful. We did the recon and we're like, this is going to be it. Uh, you know, great weather, sense of adventure. It was foreign. And they had a Costco, which is huge because you know, living in Lagos, you know, you're not, you're, you're missing those kind of things. So right. it was, it was very strange too, because, you know, prior to going to Puerto Rico, I thought Puerto Rico to the yes was something kind of sort of like a distant relative uh, when really they are more like a half brother. You know, everyone yeah. on this island is, an, you know, an American citizen. I, you know, going back to what you said about your wife and, and the days, I, I, I can't imagine listeners just for context, you know, when with most international schools, when quarantine happened and lockdown happened, most expat families went home. And that means these international school students are going back to the United States, they're going to Korea, they're going all over the world. And the teachers were still trying to support them in the work. So up in the middle of the night, and that's where that 18 hour days, I can't even imagine how that was, uh, in, you know, the, the level of burnout would be almost expected when you're trying to support students. Um, you know, you're doing your best, you're, you're passionate about helping your students, but just the sheer relentlessness of all hours of the night, literally uh, trying to support. Uh, do you have the boat, Robbie? Did you get the boat when you got to, uh, to, uh, well, you know, funny thing is I got here, I got a paddleboard. I got a couple of little things. We were kind of figuring it out. Uh, yeah. And then we loved it, and I bought a house. Okay, well, there you go. So, so, <laughs> so, now, so, you, so yeah, you can't we, water ski behind the house, though. <laughs> yeah, the, the boat will come, but yeah, the, the, house, will come. The, the house became kind of uh, the big purchase. Yeah. yeah. And it, it, it uh, yeah, it, it just became this, this beautiful, it, it was better than I expected in many, yeah. many ways. Yeah. Well, the pictures are phenomenal. Now, I've heard you say many times on Twitter and other spaces, um, you know, as you, as you were just talking about, Puerto Rico is the United States. It's, it's an unincorporated territory. Mm-hmm. Um, people are American citizens. And you've said that it is essentially the United States in every way except education. So I want to ask you specifically, what are some of the surprising things you found uh, when you when you went to Puerto Rico for the first time, when you moved there? And then what caused you to think to yourself, I need to start a nonprofit. I'm going to start tech my school. What was it that you found um, there in Puerto Rico? Yeah. 
Um, so having the context of living in Hawaii and also being in San Diego, a city bordered with Mexico, in my mind, Puerto Rico was kind of like this Mexican Hawaii. That's what I was thinking in my head. Oh, okay. um, and the first thing that kind of threw me off when I got here was we were driving down the street and I saw a United States Postal Service you know, car go by. Like the post office, the same kind of postal service that we have back in San Diego. And I was like, that's, you know, interesting. And I'll, you know, why are they here in Puerto Rico? <laughs> and then, and then, you know, the next day we, we went up to the national park where there's a beautiful, where my house is right on the base of El Yunque National Forest. It's one of the largest rainforests in North America. And uh, we went to the, you know, up to the base of that and uh, we went into the park, beautiful park. Everything's well manicured and it's, you know, put on by the national park service. And I was like, mm -hmm. what, what, what's going on here? It's National Park Service. It's MPS. Like, I'm a big National Parks guy. Uh, every year I go to different national parks around America. And I was like, this is, this is crazy. I didn't realize this. And so when I did the slightest bit of research, I was like, oh, wow, this is America. Like, it's been a part of America since like 1898 or whatever. I mean, they were officially part of America before Arizona was even, you know, a legal state. Right. Um, everyone can get U.S. passports. Any American can migrate between any state. So you can go from Puerto Rico to Texas or Texas, Puerto Rico, the same way I would go from San Diego to uh, Arizona or something like that. Um, yeah, so that was, there's just so many things that are similar. You know, they've got Costco, they've got Walgreens, they've got all these different, you know, Burlington, my wife's favorite store, all these, <laughs> yeah, right. And they have a lot of the roads. I mean, some roads are, eh, but some roads are really good as well. So you're just looking at the place like, okay, this is, this is America. This is it. And there's so many federal things in place. You're like, great. Then I started putting my kids in the school. So I started looking for, you know, we like it here. We're going to stay here. Let's put our kids in a, in a school here. And uh, that's when the shock factor happened because, you know, I had just came from Africa. And so I'm used to seeing pretty grim schools i mean not the school i was at but we had right. you know reached out to some you know sister schools and we donated some tech to some different schools and stuff so I'm, I'm used to seeing that so i was really shocked to kind of see these schools in such of a state you know first we started with a private school and i i walked in and i was walking around with the director he was a guy from texas who you know created the school 25 years ago because he couldn't find a school for his kids that he wanted so long story i'm walking around as a prospective parent and you know i just can't take the lens off I can't take the tech director lens off. I can't take the teacher lens off. So I'm just asking questions. I mean, I'm looking, I'm assessing. I'm like, hey, I noticed you guys don't have this or oh, what do you guys use for this? And da, 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 da. And, you know, they started talking about, he started telling me about like, you know, we can't really afford it because of these financial constraints, because of these things that are happening in politics or with laws or, or whatever. And so that was uh, kind of a shock to me because I'm like, you know, why is this happening? And, um, you know, we, we really started to just look for something decent around the island. And, you know, we weren't expecting anything great, but it, it, there just wasn't. There was, everything was just grim. Now, there are a few select international schools that are here. Uh, one of them being like Tassus Dorado. There's a couple of Tassus schools around the world, one in Switzerland, one in London. I mean, there's a few elite schools here with, you know, limited spaces and, you know, a $30,000, $40,000 price tag. But for it, for everyone else, uh, for the 3 million plus people, uh, it's not like that at all. And so the response I kind of was asked myself was like, you know, we have this American standard with the post office, with the national parks, the State Department. I mean, I renewed my, my son's passport. Um, 
But when it comes to the most important thing of all, in my opinion, the education, the thing that determines the future and the prosperity for the next generation, um, you know, the current standing in PR is just so far behind, even the lowest schools in America. And it's no wonder why they have the problems that they do uh, on island and uh, why there's such a major brain drain on the island. I mean, 135,000 people left in 2018 alone, 4% of the population. You've got um, just so many uh, issues. You've got, um, you know, of an island of 3 million plus people, 3.2 million uh, people, uh, the last study they did in 2016, 694 high school graduates uh, from Puerto Rico went to the mainland. That's it. On the entire island, and they can go. There's no passport. There's no visa. There's yeah. nothing. It's just like going from San Diego to Arizona, like I said. So it's mm-hmm. like you have only 694, and those are going to be the – that's it. And then wow. good luck getting them to come back because, yeah. you know, a teacher here is going to make between $1,300 and $1,900. And, you know, a teacher in Florida is going to make 4000 5000 bucks. you know, nearly starting. So it's like, you know, how, how can you compete with that? You can't. Yeah. So, so tell us about Tech My School. You, Got you, it. You, you, so, what you saw was a call yeah, to action, so, right? Tech My School. Yeah, you're writing a book. Exactly. What, what, what? Tell us yeah. all about that. It's okay. Yeah. So I, I saw, I saw the what was happening around me, and you know, like a doctor or a firefighter, you know, who goes on vacation, and let's say the firefighter sees the hotel he's staying at, the house is on fire. Right. They're not just going to let the place burn down. You know, the same thing with policemen, doctors, teachers. We're just not going to let people die or just be left behind. It's like an immediate call to action. Um, you know, how could I let fellow Americans have a future that is led by a system that is below even the lowest standards in the States in the mainland part of the States. And so because of that, I was like, I got to do something to help. And I thought at first, I'll, you know, I'll just go into the schools. I'll just volunteer as much as I can. I'll work with the directors, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, however, there's this, there's a reason why there's a lot of expats who come to Puerto Rico they come for this thing called Act 60. So what Act 60 is, is essentially you come to Puerto Rico, let's say I'm a very wealthy person or relatively wealthy, and I've got stocks and I've got properties and I'm making capital gains and I have a business or whatever in the, in the mainland part of the States. I can come here, become a bona fide resident under Act 60. I'm paying 0% capital gains, hello, Peter Schiff, mm. or 4% income tax. So I can either be in the States and pay 40% or I can come right. here and pay nothing. And right. so their bona fide residents are taking advantage of it. There's co- controversy with that because, you know, some of the locals are like, they're pricing us out and da, 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 da. However, part of the agreement though, is they have to donate $10,000 to a nonprofit every single year. That's just part of the deal. And so I was just thinking, okay, I'm part of the expat community here. They have to donate to something. And they, a lot of people, they don't care. They're just like, you know, feed the cats or kill the iguanas or you know, clean the beach up. Right. Some of them are even self-serving. They just have a nonprofit to throw themselves parties. But really, I think if I could talk to these, you know, fellow Americans to help other Americans, hey, you have to donate this 10000 donate to here. I'm going to buy this tech and I'm going to, you know, give it to these schools and not just give it to them, but really walk them through the process, right. go through the fine tooth comb, really do a needs assessment, do a gap analysis of the school on every facet, and then build that relationship with the schools. And then, uh, you know, kind of go from there. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. So I, I want to ask you about that because the, um, I'm thinking about the infrastructure, you know, if you've, if you, if, mm-hmm. if schools are, 
uh, not as advanced as they might be in the United States and Canada, et cetera. Um, I would guess that the infrastructure itself to support the tech would be a little bit limited. Or is that something that you've also, or, that you're also trying to address through your nonprofit? Yeah. So, so really, with the uh, the nonprofit, there's three things that we are um, focusing on. One is um, improving, you know, educational systems. The second is building capacity of teachers, and the third, and the most important, is the empowerment of students. Yeah. And so there on the island, there are some issues, um, one of them being like electricity. Sometimes electricity goes out. Uh, sometimes it's poor infrastructure. Sometimes something can get knocked over. Uh, sometimes, you know, it just, it just happens. Yeah. Water and electric can be, a, be an issue. Right. But that's not all the time. Now, for me right now, I have really great internet. I'm at, you know, about the 300 megabyte download package. So mm -hmm. I think internet really isn't the problem. And that's really all you need. Okay. Um, really is just getting them the devices. I mean, if you're a teacher and you're making $1,400 a month and you're still trying to shop at Costco, imagine having to buy yourself a laptop to work on, right. you know, that's, that's going to be really tough. And I think, uh, I think with any school going into that school, there's going to, it's going to be tough because there's, you know, sometimes there's amigos, sometimes there's a, just a way of doing things, a culture, a history, and they, you know, directors and principals, they want to do things their way and they have their plans and, Everyone's fighting for time. You know, I know how that goes. Um, but I think it's just a much easier sell to say, hey, you know, um, I've got these donors who have given me some money. I've noticed that you guys don't have any iPads for your students or for your teachers. Would you like me to raise some money and donate them to your school? And then I'll teach you how to use them effectively. I'm not just going to dump them on you. And then I can help you support, support them on the back end. I think that's a much easier sell than saying like, hey, you know, I noticed your report cards are absolutely ridiculous you're handing out a 94 percent to my seven-year-old in science class with no comment or standard yeah. mention uh yeah. would you like me to come in and help you rethink the way you do assessments and reporting for all your teachers uh you know i want to get to that don't get me wrong but yeah the, the carrot is the tech you know our nonprofit is tech driven but it's 100 learning centered mm -hmm. um it's not tech for tech sake by any mean yeah. um the other part you know among other things is is just building is going to come through, you know, relationship building and, you know, trust, you know, again, I've had to flip a, a school from traditional stand, uh, grading to hundred percent buy-in, uh, you know, designing the, the report cards that fit in the SAS and all that. So I've done that before, yeah. but I'm going to try to, you know, sneak my way into schools and, and uh, have kind of lasting change through this tech. That, that's kind of the carrot. Yeah, I love that. I love the idea of uh, teaching them because I think one of the things we've noticed, especially in sort of for me, the last 15 years or so is there's a lot of tech out there and there's a lot of money that gets thrown to tech. But it's the productive use of the technology that I think is the critical part. I love what you said too. the uh, what, how did you phrase that tech driven, but learning centered mm -hmm. uh, that Absolutely. idea. I love, I love that focus because it really does because there is that that piece right where you could have the technology, but if you don't know how to use it, and if teachers don't know how to create those opportunities for students, then the tech is kind of useless, right? It's not just about Absolutely. consuming. It's not just about Netflix and email. You know, we have to find ways. So how are how are some of the ways that, uh, what are some of the entry points maybe um, for, for folks? How do we, how do, what are some ways that you've tried to, especially in Puerto Rico with the teachers, if you've introduced them to technology, how have you tried to coach them on effective use of that tech? Yeah. So, um, I mean, really, this this kind of goes into my book, uh, you know, talking about the difference between what is tech ed and what is ed tech. Okay, the tell us about between. the difference. Yeah. Tell us the um, difference. It's fairly, you, you hear these, you see these 
hashtags all over the place, tech ed or ed tech or whatever. And sometimes you think they're synonymous or they're the same thing. Um, they're not. Mm-hmm. They're related, but they're not. Uh, so with tech ed, you're talking about uh, technology standards. What are students doing? What are the skills that they're learning? What is appropriate for those students? Um, that would be like your ISTE standards. Uh, you know, there's a there's not a lot of national curriculums and such, and such that kind of break those skills down. That's your tech ed. And then your ed tech is how does technology impact my instruction? Why am I choosing this piece of technology? And how does it affect the teaching and learning part of that? And so a very there's a number of authors out there who've uh, you know come up with you know catchy models and visuals to help people. I'm sure you've heard of SAMR before. Yeah. Uh, substitute augmentation modification redefinition. There's uh, the TPAC. There's Bloom's Digital Taxonomy. There's T3. Um, if you know Sonny Magana. So either way, uh, you start kind of with that basic understanding of you know why are you doing what you're doing? Because if you say the statement, well, the kids love it. You know, it's engaging. It's great engagement. And it's like, well, you know what also is great engagement? Cartoons. Cartoons are fantastic engagement. <laughs> that doesn't mean, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's got to yeah. be something that's, uh, you have to be targeted. And and uh, and another uh, another part of it just is having a proper scope and sequence of yeah. tech skills. So, uh, and this kind of talks into the book, but essentially you have uh, this layer of, we went from there's a computer class and then there's regular class where we do the learning, but then there's this computer thing. And then it became one-to-one because technology, you know, the price of everything went down and everyone could afford it. Mm-hmm. And so now every teacher is a tech teacher. And so administrators are kind of like, okay, you guys teach the tech. Good luck. You yeah. know what I mean? And so yeah. you have these teachers who have to teach their curriculum. They're stopped for time. There's training that needs to go with it. It's continually an ongoing changing, et cetera. And then, but they're the tech teachers now because they got rid of the ICT teachers or the computer science teachers. And so you're just stuck with these. If the teacher was receptive to technology, your kids got tech. If they weren't, you're doing stuff that you did in 1985. Yeah. You know what I mean? I do. I do. And it leads me to ask you maybe more of an overarching question or uh, sort of a a question about our profession, because it's something I've been thinking about a lot recently. um, And I've I've said this before on the podcast. I wonder if we're getting to the point now where there's certain aspects of tech that is non-negotiable. Like there comes a point where in the 21st century, 2022, as a teacher, if you are not at least well-versed in some aspects of technology, you're almost bordering on, I don't want to be hyperbolic about this, but you're Mm -hmm. almost bordering on malpractice, you know, because there's a difference between, I mean, there are some things that are negotiable, some things that are non-negotiable. What for you is the non-negotiable aspects of tech? I, I just feel like at some point, We've we've run out of time where the excuse, oh, I'm not very tech savvy. Oh, I'm not I'm not a tech person. I don't really get tech. To me, that right now, um, I think that I think the time has expired on that excuse <laughs> or that assertion. And I think yes. as teachers, there is a minimal level of competency that's expected with tech. Would you agree with that? And if so, what are those non-negotiable aspects of technology from, from your perspective? Yes, I mean, being the tech guy, you know, what is tech cake? What is tech cake and what is tech frosting essentially? Uh, the, the, the cake for me uh, is schools ensuring that we have a set of technology skills, uh, tech ed, and standards that are uh, that they not only adhere to, but are actively assessing both formatively and summatively. Um, these could be ISTE standards. It could be, you know, state or national curriculum. But ultimately, they have, they have to include 
some sort of relative or practical skills for today and tomorrow, you know, not 1978. Right. Uh, I'm talking about, you know, digital creation, digital commerce, citizenship, collaboration, knowledge construction, uh, computational thinking, et cetera. Um, you know, I guess the school doesn't necessarily have to, uh, not everyone has to be a programmer for Canva, but everyone should know how to use something like Canva where they're digitally creating, I guess you could say, but they should at least know the basics of how to, you know, how computers think and work. And if you wanted to, you could uh, at least dabble into it. Um, you know, think about the jobs of today and, you know, what we're being taught in the 80s and 90s. We just can't repeat that. We can't prepare people for the 80s and 90s. Um, you know, there are jobs now that don't that didn't exist then. App developer, influencer, whatever you want to call it. Uh, there's also a lot of jobs. There's going to be more jobs that will exist in the future, uh, you know, for our kids that currently haven't even been thought up yet. You know, things that are technology based, you know, digital create because because really it's got to be technology based and, and digital creation is power. Really, yeah. truly, because if you don't have that ability, you're just so far behind. I mean, how many people consume from the devices every day and how many have the ability to create the applications and softwares that we use? I mean, I believe that, you know, we are almost in the time of the Renaissance before the clergy. But back in the clergy days, you know, they had all the power because they could they were literate and not everyone else had to kind of listen to them and, you know, do what they said because they couldn't read or write. And I almost feel it's like that now. It's where you have these coders and programmers and people who can create digitally, they have all the power. I mean, think about all the most influential people in the world, Zuckerberg, Elon Musk, uh, Evan Spiegel, the, the, our, you know, the, these guys were all coders and, and, mm -hmm. you know, Jack Dorsey, he's controlling speech in a lot of ways. So that's the kind of thing we got to flip that pyramid. We have like this, you know, let's say 95% digital consumer and only 5% producers. We need to flip it. We need to make it 95% producers, and 5% only consuming. I mean, you don't necessarily have to, like let's say with, with literacy, I mean, everyone needs to know how to read and write. There's no debate about that. However, not everyone's gonna be an author and that's okay. Sometimes you just write a letter to your wife or your mom or your sister or whatever. I've made little apps and games for my brother or my, my son. My son got sick one time on Halloween. He couldn't go to, on Halloween. so. I took a, I told him to put his picture on, uh, the picture of himself in his little Batman costume. I took a couple of pictures. I uploaded them to the computer and I made a little video game for him that day when we were at home because I had to stay home with him. And uh, that was his Halloween. Was he got, you know what I mean? It's not going to go viral or anything, but it's just something that we're all consuming on these things. We need to know how to, right. how to work, work on them. Now, in terms of the, the icing, like what is the cool stuff, the negotiable stuff, I guess you could say. Um, for me, this would probably be more like, uh, you know, AR, VR, stuff like that. Um, I think there's some really nice, cool things that can you can do with those things. They're not completely developed fully, but I still think you can do some really great things. Um, I think that uh, they're still, you know, very relevant. Um, teaching secondary students how to mint their artwork in, in, in art class, for example, putting them into NFTs, teaching them about digital commerce and the blockchain. Um, those are, those are some things that I think would be really great for schools to have. And that's the direction they should be heading because again, you're just talking about empowering students with a world that is present and in the future. Um, and then, uh, you know, keeping up with the latest and greatest, you know, devices, robots and stuff like that. So I think for teachers, they, they have to know 
at least the basics of you know their tech ed standards and have some sort of conceptualization of ed tech as to why they're choosing things. Um, there's one particular uh, set of standards that kind of encompasses all. I think they do a really great job. It's called the DQ Institute um, for Global Standards of Digital Intelligence. They have 24 digital competencies that focus on eight critical areas of digital life, identity, use, safety, security, emotional intelligence, literacy, communication, and rights. And so that's somewhere teachers can kind of go and kind of get like a baseline, like, okay, here's something I can look at and kind of, you know, start if you wanted to kind of see where ideally we should be. It's not mainstream, but I think if you wanted to kind of get ahead or at least, because again, it's, with education, especially with bureaucracy, with unions, with different cultures of each school, a lot of times the the benefit that your students are going to, you know, truly um, gain is from your own efforts, your own individual. You know, I know these. We don't have to do it. I know that this isn't what you know. I, I could just be watching Netflix right now, mm-hmm. but my kids are worth it. I know my kids need this. Maybe the system that we were all brought up in isn't here yet, but it's, I can access it now. I can give right. it to my kids now. And there's no reason why you shouldn't if you have the opportunity and, and uh, you know, you care about kids' futures, really, right? Right, right, absolutely. Um, I love that. I love that uh, cake and frosting. Uh, I may have to borrow <laughs> that. Uh, I think that's a great way to look at it. And I also appreciate the, uh, the reference to the Renaissance, the idea that we're at this point where right now there's a small number of people that have a lot of the power and control and that's going to end up flipping. And, you know, as I talked about, I think we have to be honest uh, in noting that some teachers have been uh, negligent in becoming tech savvy, but I, but I mm-hmm. really feel like many more are just overwhelmed. They, they just, they just feel that the rapid pace of change, and of course, tech is accelerating in, in the last decade, we've seen just a tremendous amount of change. Even when you think back to say 2012, you know, 10 years ago, what was tech like in, in, in terms of personally and, and in schools and look at it now, right? So I think, you know, if I'm a teacher and I'm feeling overwhelmed, I really understand what you're saying, Robbie. I, I really want to bring more um, ed tech and tech ed into my classroom. I want to be that, um, but I'm feeling overwhelmed. So from your perspective, what's the advice? How do I get, how do I get started or, or how do I start to supplement what I'm doing? What's a good entry point for me if I'm just feeling completely overwhelmed by, by tech at this point in my career? That's a great question. Um, that's essentially what I'm writing the book about. I'm writing a book about uh, you know, ways people, whether they're new teachers, you know, incoming teachers, veteran teachers, administrators, whoever, um, where can they start? What are some advices and you know, maybe they won't do all the things. Maybe they'll do one or two, but um, mm-hmm. yeah. So really there's a few ways to get started, whether again, you're new or uh, whether you're, uh, you've done a very good job of camouflaging yourself because there are many teachers who, who have great camouflage and they can kind of nod their head during a PD or you know, when an administrator walks in the room and then they kind of revert back, they come out of their shell and they go back to their, their normal uh, natural ways, I guess you could say. Um, yeah, so here's a couple of, uh, you know, common things that you could do, easy things, low hanging fruit. The first thing you want to do, I know this is going to sound cliche or, you know, basic, but just kind of know what your school vision, mission, and the systems that support that at your school. Uh, think your learning management system. Does your school have a learning management system? Do you have a student information system? How are you communicating with your students and your parents? Is a Google Classroom? Get really good at that really know the primary system that really 
drives forward your mission and vision of your school. The next thing, again, something that I think you know a little bit about is know your standards. Yeah, you got you got to know your standards, both the primary standards and your your tech standards. Now, um, your your school may or may not have tech standards. Um, if they aren't, you can ask your you know direct, director of teaching and learning, your principal, your instructional coach, whoever your your team leader, um, and talk about adopting some because uh, you know this is again it's not for you. You're gonna have to do a little bit of work, but it's it's for our kids. Like again, you can't keep preparing people for 1984. Uh, we have uh, the ISTE standards, ISTE.org. That's a very basic, you know, low-hanging fruit place to start. Uh, I think they do a, a, you know, a fine job. And then, uh, again, I mentioned DQ. DQ incorporates ISTE standards and many more. If you want to get a little bit more, they're, you know, very spot on. Um, for your ed tech models, uh, again, you want to look at how the tools that you're using in your classroom, how they impact instruction, both for yourself and for the learning and for your students. So. There's the SAMR, S-A-M-R. If you just Google that, it'll kind of appear. And really, you want to click SAMR infographics. And there's a lot of great infographics that you can um, kind of showcase. Uh, one really famous one or common one that I share with others is about this guy. It's like a stick figure on the shore. The stick figure on the shore is no tech. And then it says substitution, the S. And that would be like someone using uh, a snorkel set. And then the A is someone who's, you know, on a canoe. And then an M is someone who's, you know, diving. And then the R is someone, you know, really deep in a submarine or something like that. So look at these impact models. You can YouTube stuff as well just to kind of get a sense of how this affects your instruction. Um, I would say if it's your first year kind of doing this, um, choose two new techs. Let's say you know the learning management system. Choose two types of tech that you really want to try to master and that are kind of supported by the school. They could be, you know, Nearpod or Pear Deck or, you know, Padlet, just name your tech. But one that you think that fits in the SAMR model for you, fits in the ISD standards, it's empowering kids. Grab those two, really kind of learn them with your students, practice with them. There's going to be, you know, failure, embrace the failure. It's, hap- it's going to happen. Either the right. computer's going to break, this isn't going to happen. This guy's going to forget his life. It's just going to happen. So you just have to be able to be very fluid, very flexible. Um, and then every year, just add two more. And then pretty soon, by you know your third or fourth year, you're using eight, ten tools that you're mastered at. And you know they're not coming out with – there's a lot of tools coming. There's five million apps coming out you know, plus a year. But there's only a few that are like really, really good that are going to be you know, kind of universally used in school. And so if you know the top 10, I mean, you're, you're going to be in great, great shape. And then uh, another thing is you want to find mentors. Find mentors on campus. You want to lean on them to support you. Again, it could be a co-teacher. It could be a tech integrator if your school has it. If it doesn't exist, create a PLN, uh, you know, personalized learning network. You could do it for yourself on Twitter, Facebook, Discord. Just really lean into learning and, you know, ask questions. And then finally, the, the key word is, you know, facilitate. You need to facilitate, allow your students to learn, get out of their ways. Don't not teach something because you weren't taught it and you don't know how to do it because some things are just being made right now. So how could you have possibly learn this in college? You couldn't have, you know what I mean? You, you have mm-hmm. to Google tilt brush on VR, buy the headset, get the Google tilt brush and let the kids go, mm-hmm. you know, learn with them. It's okay. So being a facilitator is the new role for teacher. You are not the center of the universe anymore. You know, 
this phone right here, much smarter than you are. It's got all yeah. the dates, it's got all the names, it's got everything like that. So, right. um, you know, there's thousands of instructional videos and whatever it is you're trying to teach. Um, you know, there's 51 million YouTube channels. So just, uh, yeah, just facilitate, introduce things, yeah. know what kids need, and then just let them kind of go. Yeah, it, it feels a lot like once I have the willingness, I know it's cliche, but uh, think big, start small, slowly mm -hmm. add things, get really good at what you're doing. And pretty soon in a, in a matter of a short number of years, you're going to have this expansive repertoire about uh, possibilities. So our willingness and our imagination are often the things that get in the way the most of the time. The, the opportunities are available to us if we have the willingness to go learn. And I also love that idea of learning alongside your students saying, hey, I don't know this either, but I'm really curious about that. What a great way to model that idea of inquiry or curiosity alongside learning the technology. So Robbie, we look forward to uh, the book coming out and, and look forward to uh, being able to dive into to more of that content specifically. I've got two questions as we finish up here. Uh, really appreciate you being here, Robbie. Uh, the, the two questions I ask everyone who comes on the podcast and the first one, and you can take this in any direction you want to, but the question is simply, educationally speaking, what keeps you up at night? Um, really for me, I think uh, the thought that we are, I've kind of alluded to it, but the thought that we are producing generations of stagnated, underdeveloped kids who you know, will never reach their fullest potential simply because we are forever stuck in an antiquated model. The idea that we're producing hundreds of thousands of children for a world that basically no longer exists. You know what I mean? Um, there's just such a gap between the haves and the have-nots when it comes to you know instructional content in regards to 21st century skills. Uh, you have entire countries who have adopted national curriculums dedicated towards you know relevant tech skills, and they're best preparing those students for the future jobs uh, or jobs that don't you know currently exist. While concurrently, you have entire countries uh, and truly a majority that are preparing students for 1981. I mean, Puerto Rico in particular is. I'm in the classroom and I see teachers spending, they walk into the classroom, they spend eight minutes writing a bunch of text on the board. And then the kids spend the next 25 minutes copying what the teacher copying just wrote. It it's in, it's yeah. insane. Uh, so yeah, just, just showing them how to use Google Slides is like very prodigious. Um, yeah, so you know, instruction that's full, chock full of dictation, rope memorization, tests, packets graded with percentages and extra credit points. Uh, you know, all done in a nice kind of siloed industrial model. Um, you know, how can those kids who graduate from those kinds of institutions, you know, not keep up? Uh, but, in, you know, how can they compete at all with these people who've, who've had this 21st century education? They just can't. And so it's nearly ensured poverty, uh, lack of prosperity and subjugation to, and this is subjugating, you know, entire swaths of populations and people. So uh, we, we just can't compete against computers. We lost. You know, the war is over. Uh, we just need to work in partnership with yeah. them, build with them, build within them, knowing how to, to truly uh, yeah. work within them. And I think AI is going to be a huge thing moving forward in the future. So yeah. uh, learning with machines uh, is going to be paramount. And um, yeah, I, I just, that's what keeps me up at night. Just knowing the fact that the learning is there, it's very obtainable. Yeah. All a teacher has to do is say, hey, here's some cool stuff that you need. I don't really know it but here's the videos and just let me get out of your way and let you guys learn with you. And, right. and just having the, the confidence uh, in themselves to do that and be being vulnerable, I think 
that that's just so important for those teachers who do, you know, thank you. Yeah. Closing that gap for sure. And not having the gap widen between, as you say, the mm -hmm. haves and have nots. Last question uh, is about success, personal success, professional success. Again, take it in any direction you want to. Uh, the question is simply if a random person stopped you on the street and asked you, what is your definition of success? How would you answer them? Well, you know, in teaching, we don't like to recreate the will. Uh, so I won't re recreate the will with this answer because, I, you know, this is something that I think a lot of people have thought deeply about. And, you know, I agree with, uh, you know, many of the, these, this answer, I agree with this particular uh, response. And I think the American forefathers, uh, you know, kind of said it best when they said the pursuit of happiness. Yeah. That's the definition of success. If someone is actively pursuing mm -hmm. their best life to, you know, ensure the success of their future if they can truly push forward and, and do so in a way that they're pursuing or chasing this dream i think that's success and yeah. you know some of these ingredients of success include you know time having time uh, obviously having good health uh, money or means to do this uh, love and support from you know family or you know other loved ones and ultimately some sort of passion project, something that you believe in and hopefully something that gives you a sense of contribution and giving to others. Um, another word that I would associate with success is freedom. Hmm. You know, having the freedom to accomplish whatever goals uh, that are in line with this pursuit of happiness. Yeah. Robbie, a fantastic <laughs> happiness is, uh, you know, and the, the, be the best part about what you said there in terms of pursuing our best lives is each one of us gets to define what our best life is and therefore what what makes you happy and what makes you successful may not be the same for me, may not be the same for someone else if we all pursue that sort of personal happiness, which leaves us feeling fulfilled and content uh, in our lives as we, we try to, as you say, live our best lives. Listeners, you definitely can follow Robbie on Twitter. The handle is at Cobbs Class, all lowercase. Instagram, uh, follow at TechMind my school. Uh, Tech My School also has a Facebook page, uh, LinkedIn. You'll find, uh, just search Robert Cobbs on LinkedIn. And of course, the website is www.techmyschool.org. I'll have uh, links to all of those handles and websites in the show notes uh, for you to uh, to follow Robbie. Robbie, uh, great seeing you again. Um, very envious of the fact that you're living in paradise. <laughs> uh, but thanks for doing this, man. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Tom. And for anyone who listens, who uh, cares about, you know, education, cares about uh, Puerto Rico or just your fellow Americans, uh, the education system here does need help. So, uh, yeah, again, head over to the techmyschool.org website and uh, just take a look, check us out. We're looking for partners, sister schools. It doesn't have to necessarily be a monetary donation. It could just be, hey, here's some kids we can connect you with. They can learn some Spanish and maybe do a week without Wall Strip or something like that. So, Definitely looking for partners. And uh, Tom, thank you so much for having me. This has been an absolute pleasure. Great. Thanks, Robbie. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcasts. Now let's get back to the episode. In Assessment Corner this week, we have a listener question. So here goes. Hi, Tom. I got a question from a coworker this week. And I told them I would submit it to you. And the email goes on to say, the freshmen in our high school are currently reading To Kill a Mockingbird. This teacher is excellent, and they did some nonfiction reading before the novel to set the tone as far as the historical context, etc. Then the book is broken up into chunks, 
and after a chunk, they have a Socratic seminar, and the students discuss the questions that they're given. There are some other checkpoints along the way, um, you know, by way of notes, etc., but that's kind of a summary of what they're doing. So this teacher is becoming very frustrated that the students are not actually reading the novel and says, I can tell by their responses that they're just reading a summary or the cliff notes. So her question is, how do I get them to read? Any advice you have would be most welcomed. Okay, so that's the email. So the way I see this question, there are two issues at play here. One is a literacy question and the other is an assessment question and they do overlap quite a bit. Now my short answer to the question is, you can't get them to read, as in physically force them to open the book and read it, unless you start resorting to threats of penalty or pop quizzes or some kind of gotcha system. But, but here are my thoughts. First, this literacy piece. Now, literacy is both simple and complex. It's simple because we know what to do and we know what works, but it's complex because the execution is not always that seamless, right? The basic formula for reading is that kids generally will read under two conditions. One, the book is of high interest, and two, the book is at or just slightly above my current reading level. Now, some students may not be reading the novel because they can't, as in it's too sophisticated for them. That's possible, but I'm, I'm sure the teacher has checked for that. Maybe they have, maybe they haven't, but I'm going to assume they have. Now, some students may not be reading the book because they're not that interested in the story. The, the class novel, if you will, is really a bit of a relic of days gone by. You know, I remember when I was at McNichol Park Middle School in 2003 uh, in Penticton, B.C., and we were envisioning and contemplating what our late literacy program might look like and what recovery in the middle years might look like in terms of the systems and processes that we would put in place. And I remember much of the literature on literacy back then was talking about how outdated the class novel was. And that was almost 20 years ago. Does anyone like being forced to read something they have no interest in? I think that's especially true for fiction. So for me, if you're going to do the class novel, then I think we have to be a bit creative in how students read the story or access the story. Now more on that in a moment, okay? This is a timeless phenomenon. Like I remember this issue when I was a student in high school in the early 1980s. So this is nothing new. You know, many of my classmates didn't do the required reading. And, and so the teacher would be frustrated and tell everybody to put everything away. And, and we're going to spend the whole class period reading. And it ended up being a big waste of time. The novel study as a class is just really not a modern approach to literacy but this kind of blends with the assessment issue as well. Okay, so the assessment piece to this would be, I would ask the question, what are you assessing? Are you assessing their ability to read the novel? Or are you assessing their ability to analyze and dissect the themes of the concepts and other aspects surrounding the novel? If it's the latter, then accessing the story in as efficient as possible manner is what I would do. Whether that's an audiobook, reading the book in class, even jigsawing the story, like put them into groups and maybe stagger the days. So group one reads chapter one and then presents a synthesis the next day, or maybe group one does chapters one and two and then three and four and, and so on. So it rotates so we efficiently get through the story or something like that. Just something to create some efficiency in accessing the actual story so you can get to the really fun stuff, the deep stuff, the analysis, the depth, all of that. You see, if you let the students choose their own books, 
high interest at their reading level, you could still do all of the same activities and exercises around analyzing, critiquing, hypothesizing, you know, historical analysis, all of that. Now, I know for some teachers that's a bit overwhelming because you'll think, well, how can I help them if I haven't read the story? But again, I would say it's not about the story. It's about the thinking that surrounds the story, right? So if they've chosen the story, there's an increased likelihood that they're going to read the story and be able to provide a rationale for their decisions. So if, for example, they're making a claim, then obviously they're going to have to support that claim with details from the story. And you would, of course, be able to check that they've done so. So in essence, we're not teaching To Kill a Mockingbird. We're teaching literary analysis through To Kill a Mockingbird, right? So that's what I mean by the question, what are you assessing? Be clear on what you're assessing and then clear a path to get there in as efficient and as effective manner as possible. Now, I'm empathetic to the teacher's plight here. It's frustrating. But trying to force them to read kind of misses the mark. Nothing is going to suck the joy out of reading than forcing people to read, not just students, people, especially forcing them to read fiction that they're not interested in. So just be honest with them. Like, listen, some of you may not like this story. I get that. Okay, but what we're really doing here is a bit of a historical analysis. So I need you, we're going to look at the themes and, and all of that. So we really do have to access this story, but give them some flexibility in learning about the story, right? If audiobooks were available in the 1960s, kids would have wanted them too. This isn't a kids today issue because if social media had existed when I was in high school, I would have definitely been on it. So it's a sign of our changing times. It's not this cliche around a lazy generation or something like this. So maybe the creative way is to let them listen to an audiobook. Then like many of you, when you listen to a podcast, your students could be listening to the story when they drive to work or when they're mowing the lawn or doing other things, right? That's how we listen to podcasts. And why not listen to an audiobook that way? Because that way, the issue of not reading the book is kind of taken off the table for the most part. And now you can get to that good stuff you're thinking about. Now, listen, I'm not saying kids shouldn't have to read because of course they do. But what I am saying is that if you're going to force a story on them for another purpose, then maybe give them a way to access that story. You know, not, not necessarily the movie, because movies always take shortcuts and all that due to time restraints. But give them ways to access that story so that you can get to the learning you had in mind when you chose the story in the first place. If you want them to read something that you're assigning, then I think you're going to have to give them some agency in, in how they access it. If you want them to read, then I think you're going to have to give them some agency in what they read, right? So if you want to focus on a particular story like uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, then we've got to be a little bit creative in how they access that story. So for me, this issue comes down to what are you assessing? What's your focus? Be clear on your purpose and then negotiate around that purpose so you can get to what you really want to get to, which are those Socratic seminars and all that really thoughtful stuff. That's really the fun and rewarding part of teaching. Okay, that's it for this week. Remember to follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. Um, also, please email the podcast, tomshimmerpod at gmail.com if you've got questions for Assessment Corner. I love getting questions from listeners, so 
please don't hesitate to send those questions in. Or if you've got any suggestions or feedback for me about the podcast, I just appreciate hearing from you. And a reminder to check the show notes for the links for all of the upcoming professional learning events this summer and this fall. Remember, the next episode is now going to be May 23rd. So we're going to go two weeks from now and we're going to go every other week uh, until the end of August. Please subscribe, rate and review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts. But a rating and review on any platform will be most helpful to grow the podcast reach. And if you like what you hear, please keep spreading the word about the podcast to your friends, your colleagues or on social media. I would really appreciate that. Have a great week, everyone. 